Our scripture this morning is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Thank you, Suzanne. Any, uh, anybody here Wild Kratz fans? Wild Kratz, anybody here? Yes, in the back? Good. Yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah, this, this new show, uh, we recently got Roku, uh, and it's, you know, it's changing our world, probably for the bad more than the good, but who knows? We just got the Roku, and, and through Roku, we're now able to get this new TV program called Wild Kratz which our children absolutely love, and I love that they love it. It's a great show. It's very educational. It teaches them about animals. They learn all kinds of things about animals. It's like part of its real life with these two guys who kind of introduce them to these animals. And then it it turns into a cartoon, and they turn into these these humans that can turn into creatures. I I don't really understand it all that well. You'd have to ask my son. He could explain it better than I can. Uh, but anyway, it's, it's neat because it teaches them, they're learning all kinds of things about animals. And so in the spirit of Wild Kratz, I want to just teach you a little bit about animal. And I've actually shared this before, something quite remarkable about frogs. You guys ready to learn something about frogs? Okay. Here's what it is, is that a frog, if you, if you take a frog and you put the frog in boiling water, the frog will jump out of the water, right? Because it's just, it can't handle it. But if you take a frog, this is what I've heard. This might be a legend. I'm not sure about this. I've heard that if you take a frog and you put the frog in a pot of water that is room temperature and you turn on the heat and it slowly heats up the water, the frog doesn't realize the danger that surrounds it, doesn't realize what's happening, and the frog will die. So today we're continuing uh, in our series, series called Soul Fit, and this is a, a series that has been going for the last couple of weeks, and it will go for a few more weeks. Then in a few weeks, we're going to begin a new series called Surrender, and this is a series in which we're going to be basically taking a look at the second half of the Gospel of Luke, looking at some key passages. There's a, a key verse in the Gospel of Luke. Luke 9.51, where it talks about how Jesus turned, and from that point on, he headed towards Jerusalem. From that point on, he turned and headed towards Jerusalem. And so then as you read the Gospel of Luke from that point on, you're intended to read it in the light of the fact that he's heading towards Jerusalem. It's a reminder that he's on his way, and he's on his way to die. This is, he's on this course to, 
surrender even his life to the will of the Father. And so when you read the, the Gospel of Luke from that point on, there's actually an invitation for us to walk with Jesus to Jerusalem, and then also it's an opportunity for us to surrender our own lives to God in the same way that, that, that Christ did, to surrender more and more of ourselves. And so we're going to be doing this series called Surrender as we go through that, because the weeks that lead up to Easter are a great time in, in, the, in the life of the church to really think about surrendering as Christ did. So that's what's going to happen in just a few weeks. We're going to begin that series called Surrender. But today, we're still in this series called Soul Fit. And the question which really drives this whole series, a question that I've encouraged you to ask yourself as I have been asking myself the same question is this, am I soul fit? Am I soul fit? Is my soul fit? Right? This is the time of year when we start thinking about getting fit in all different ways, maybe getting financially fit, certainly getting physically fit. This is the time of year when gym memberships go up 40%, something like that. This is the time when we start thinking about maybe eating better, especially after the holidays. So we think about getting physically fit. And so we know, we know how to get physically fit, but how do we get soul fit? How does does that work? What are the exercises that we can engage in that will enable our soul to get in shape, our soul to get fit? And that's what we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks. We've been looking at these various exercises that can help to get your soul fit. We've looked at prayer. Prayer is sort of an obvious one. Prayer is an an exercise that you can engage in that can help to shape and transform your soul. Meditation, we talked about that one. Meditation where you take the Word of God and you reflect on it and you seek to sort of apply it to your own life and you just make an exercise of that as part of your daily routine. So, So these are exercises that we can engage in in order to help our souls become more fit. And in this passage, yet again, another exercise emerges. Now, before we get to it, I want to to start actually by looking at the end of the passage that we read. Verse 25, and particularly the last part of verse 25, uh, it says, let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. As you see the day approaching. Now, what is the writer referring to here? Well, he's referring to what is... is, uh, mentioned in other places in Scripture as the day of the Lord. And it's this, this day, whatever the day of the Lord is, what's interesting to note here is that clearly the early Christian community, they thought about it and they reflected upon it somewhat consistently, so much so that this shorthand phrase can be used, the day is approaching and everybody would know what he was talking about. So it's clearly something they reflected on. Of course, well, what, what is it? It's the day of the Lord. It's this it's this point where Christ will return. Christ will come back, and he will renew, and he will restore all things. It's a time when Christ will come back, and oftentimes when the day of the Lord is talked about in the Bible, it's talked about in the context of judgment. And that word there, right, I'd say that word judgment, and, and that's a word that is, is very unpopular in our culture. I think for many of us, it kind of makes the hairs on the back of our neck stand up, when we start hearing about this idea of, of judgment, this idea that God might bring judgment uh, upon people in this world, and, and that's something that we, we really struggle with, but I think that it's, it's something we need to understand that, that actually, even though we have this sort of visceral reaction to it, 
the reality is everybody longs for judgment whether they realize it or not. Everybody, in some sense, will end up longing for judgment in some sense, some place. Because what we need to understand is that judgment is actually the same thing as justice. There's no difference. Justice and judgment are the same thing. In fact, and I've said this before, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew in which the Old Testament is written, one of the main words that is often used to refer to judgment is the word mishpat. What's interesting about that Hebrew word is that it can be translated as either judgment or justice. In fact, you'll find, as you read through the Old Testament, you'll find your English translations with the word justice, and you'll discover that the word is mishpat underneath it. And then in another context, you'll find the word judgment, and it's the word mishpat. And the translators are just trying to decide in that context which translation makes the most sense. But within the Hebrew language, they understood that these are just, they're they're flip sides of the same coin. That if we long for justice, if we long for things to be right, then we are also longing for, for judgment. I, I mean, I think of uh, my wife and I watched this movie uh, years ago called The First Wives Club. Anybody the First Wives Club? Anybody know this movie? And I, I, I don't know if I'm getting it right, but these, these women, it stars like Goldie Hawn and, and Bette Midler. And essentially, it's the story of these, these women whose husbands, they, all of their husbands leave them for younger women. And so they're, they, they're just kind of getting together and they're sort of, it's like a support, they're supporting each other through this. And it's actually about them plotting their revenge. It's about them plotting their revenge against the, these husbands that left them for these younger women. And the reality is you find yourself sort of cheering them on, right? I mean, you're kind of with them because you're like, yeah, that was, that was not cool. That was, that was unjust. And so you're, you, 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 what, what are we doing when you're sort of going along with them? You're longing for judgment. That's what judgment, judgment is, is when things are made right, when justice comes. You see, we all, we all long for judgment. We all long for, for justice. And at the heart of the Christian faith is this belief that God will bring it. God will bring it. That's actually why Jesus is able to tell us to turn the other cheek. That's why Jesus is able to say to us to, to not retaliate, to, to forgive, and to turn the other cheek. Because what he's saying here is, is justice will come. You need to trust God. You don't need to take it into your own hands. Because God, God will, will bring it. And so we, we all long for judgment. We all long for, for justice. Right? But see, here's where the problem comes. The problem is, is that we can't expect God to bring judgment on others if we're not willing to consider the possibility that we might need to receive it ourselves. You see, in the end, that's why we don't like it. It's because if, if, if okay, if, if God's going to bring justice and seek to, to undo the wrongs that have come into this world and that come into this world that other people do, see, we get nervous when we maybe start to think, well, wait a minute, is that what about me? So we love it if it's just other people are receiving it, but, but we aren't so happy if maybe this comes to us. And this is precisely the, uh, the double standard that the Apostle Paul identifies in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 2, he's writing to a group of people who it, it seems, I mean, they're all happy about judgment. They're happy God's going to come and, and bring judgment against the bad people in this world and all this kind of stuff. And they're all happy about that. And then Paul says, 
You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, when Paul says this, he says, you who pass judgment do the same things. He's not necessarily saying that you do exactly the same things that they do. Perhaps you've never robbed a bank. Uh, perhaps, you have, perhaps you have remained faithful to your spouse. Right? I mean, we, we can go on about maybe there are certain ways in which others are different than you. Their sin is different than you. But what we need to understand and what Paul go, then goes on to explain, actually explains in chapter 1 and then even again in, in chapter 3, is that when we stand before a holy God, Quibbling over who is more sinful than the other is a little bit like two ants arguing over who is taller in the face of an elephant. You, you see, I mean, the ants, they come in different sizes. Am I right about this? I mean, there are, there are little ants, and then there are big ants. I mean, you can have an ant that is twice as big as another ant. But when those two ants stand before an elephant, it's kind of ridiculous to argue which one is bigger. And, and see, when we come to realize the greatness of our God, the holiness of our God, we come to realize, well, maybe our sin isn't quite the same. Maybe even that person is worse than we are. But compared to a holy God, we are all sinful. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it's that basic understanding that then leads into what this passage is about and what leads into what is at the very heart of the Christian faith. Let me read to you again the beginning of this passage. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Now, there is so much in those verses. I can't go into all that's that's going on in those verses. But this is just getting to the very heart of the gospel, and that is that though we have sinned, and though we do not deserve to be in the presence of God, we have a God who loves us so much that in the person of Jesus, God himself came and he died for us. By his blood, he took upon himself the judgment that we deserve. God himself took the judgment that that we deserve, and he took it upon himself. Himself, You see, that's what forgiveness is. If you think about what forgiveness is, forgiveness is absorbing the judgment that they deserve and taking it upon yourself. Forgiveness is when you say, I'm not going to retaliate for what they've done. I'm just going to absorb what they deserve. I'm going to take it upon myself. That's what forgiveness is. And what this is talking about is that, that the God revealed to us in the Scriptures The God revealed to us in the Bible is a God who has come and has taken it upon himself. And you will not find this in any other religion. This is what separates Christianity from every other religion, is that we have a God who 
was willing to come and to die, to give his life, to absorb the judgment that we deserve, that we might be able to enter into his presence, that Jesus is our intercessor, that he intercedes on our behalf, that he comes in between, he comes in between the judgment that we deserve. He takes it upon himself and he intercedes on our behalf that we might enter into the presence of God. It talks about him being this the new curtain uh, by a new living way opened up for us through the curtain that is his body. And of course, this is what this is uh, building on conceptually is that in the Old Testament, you had the temple and that in the very center of the temple was the Holy of Holies. And that's where God's presence resided. But there was a curtain, a curtain that separated the presence of God from the people. The people were not able to go into the presence of God. And what this is saying is that because Jesus died and has absorbed the judgment for us, because Jesus died and has forgiven us, now this is a curtain that opens and allows us to go into the very presence of God. The very heart of the Christian faith, and I say this again, is listen to me, no matter who you are, no matter what you have done, no matter what you might be doing right now. We have a God that if we will just turn to him in repentance, if we will just turn to him and confess our sin, we have a God who loves us and died to forgive us that we might enter into his presence. We see that Jesus is our our intercessor, but then it goes on beyond that. He's not just our intercessor. He's also our inscriber. In other words, he doesn't just forgive us of our sin. He then makes it possible, works in us to be able to live differently, to inscribe, to, to write the commands of God on our hearts that we can begin to live, to live differently. Now, where am I getting this from? Well, this, is all, this all comes through in this language Uh, We find in verse 22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. And the language here very clearly points back to the book of Ezekiel. And in the book of Ezekiel, which is written about 600 years before uh, Christ's ministry, before Christ came, about 600 years before that, the prophet Ezekiel talks about this time when God will come, when the Spirit of God will come, and the Spirit of God will come and will cleanse us and will, will enable us to live out the commands of God, that the Spirit will write the commands of God on our hearts. And in fact, the, this sprinkled language, which points back to Ezekiel, This is exactly what's said just a few verses before our passage. If you look up a little bit earlier, it actually quotes from a different prophet, from Jeremiah. It says, the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. This is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my law in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. So Jesus is our intercessor, but he's also our inscriber. What what the author of Hebrews is saying is that these prophecies in Ezekiel and Jeremiah are fulfilled in Jesus. That through his death, through his forgiveness, he has opened up this way for the Spirit of God 
to come in us and to work in us and to enable us to live differently. In other words, he has made it possible for our souls to become fit. Jesus has died and opened up a way for the Spirit to come and to make our souls fit. This, of course, brings us right back to the question that we sort of began with then, right? Okay, well, how do I tap into that? How do I tap into the Spirit that, that has come to work in my soul? How do I tap into that? And, of course, that's what this whole series is about. And we've been looking at these different exercises, these exercises which are often called the spiritual disciplines because these are practices that we engage in that allow the Spirit to come and work in us in exactly this fashion. So we've looked at these different exercises. Today we're looking at a third exercise that enables the Spirit to work in us. And what is it? And this one might surprise you. Here's what it is. Community. Through Christian community, this is an exercise that we can engage in that can allow the Spirit to work in our lives. We see this here in verses 24 and 25. It says, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Right? This idea that, that the Spirit works through us as we spur one another on, as we encourage one another on that the, you know, When it talks about these good deeds, again, good deeds are the fruit of the Spirit. It's the Spirit that produces these good deeds in us. What the writer is saying here is that the Spirit actually can work through the community to spur us on to good deeds, to bear good fruit. We see this actually in verse 25. It says, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. What's really interesting about that word encourage is that in the, in the Greek, it, the word is perikolantes, and it's a word that is the same word, same root word that we find in the Gospel of John when Jesus talks about how he will send the paraclete, the paraclete, and the paraclete is the Holy Spirit. He's saying, I will send the Holy Spirit, and it's the same, same word that the Holy Spirit is the great encourager, you might say. But here, the writer is saying that we are to encourage one another. What it's getting at is it's bringing together this idea that, yes, the Spirit is the one who works and ultimately encourages, but that's done through the church, through the community, through the body of Christ. So how how do we enable our souls to become fit? It's through community, through practicing this exercise of being in community. And then what emerges from this passage, and it's so crucial, especially for us today, is that community, well, like these other exercises, whether it be meditation or prayer, requires intentionality. It requires intentionality. I I think it's interesting here because, you know, I mean, again, like if you're going to be physically fit and you're going to engage in the practices that are going to make you physically fit, it requires intentionality. Like you don't just, you know, accidentally end up in shape, right? I don't know what happened. How am I all of a sudden... How how did I just lose 30 pounds? I don't even know how that happened, right? I mean, you don't just accidentally start eating well, right? It's something that you have to be intentional about. And, of course, the same thing is true with these other spiritual practices. You You don't just accidentally, like, you know, wake up and your Bible just happens to be open in front of your face. It requires intentionality. And the same thing is true with community. 
I think it's interesting that we see this here. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. That even in that day, there was a tendency for people to miss out on this, to not be intentional about getting together. And if that was true then, how much more so is that true today? The reality is, and, and we've talked about this before, you know, we, we do not live in a world that naturally fosters healthy community. We just don't. We do not, the modern world is not a world that naturally fosters community. And we've talked about this before, right? I mean, television. Uh, television is something that has really, I think, helped to kill community because, right, just stay home. There's no reason to go out. There's always something to do. It used to be, I'm bored. What am I going to do? Maybe I'll go hang out with some people. Well, now it's just really easy to just stay home. The television technology, those sorts of things have made it more difficult for us to to naturally end up in communities. It requires more intentionality. Uh, just, Just the suburban culture that we live in with the commuter culture, the commuter culture, which is a, a completely a modern phenomenon, has totally helped to bring down and break down community ties because people just are all, are all over the place. And so there are all kinds of benefits of this, but we have to see the downside. Another downside of this, actually, some of you are going to think I'm getting political here, and I'm really not, but, but reading a book that was talking about this, that the increased role of government has in many respects helped to break down community. And the reason is because we rely on the government more than we rely on the people around us. Now, I'm not here to rail against big government. Believe me, that's not what I'm trying to do because there are all kinds of benefits to modern Western governments. I, honestly, even the most conservative of us, trust me, we would not want to go back to pre-modern government times. There are all kinds of benefits of, of modern government for sure. Uh, and so I'm, I'm not trying to rail against that at all. I'm just saying that we have to recognize that there are some downsides of this, right? I, I was going to go into this long story about, oh, maybe I will. With that. Well, I'll try to make it short. My, uh, my brother, uh, my brother uh, this is 10 years ago, he, he was at home. It was, he was asleep. He was in bed. His kids were down the hallway. And, and all of a sudden, he hears the radio come on in his kitchen. He's like, oh, my gosh. He's like, he's like, what do I do here? You know, he's like, uh, um, you know, maybe it was just an alarm was inadvertently set, you know? I mean, that's probably what it was. But he'd also read about these intruders that were actually coming in, turning radios on to lure people down so that he could attack them. And so he's like, you know, what, what do I do? And he's like, well, he, he thought to himself, I've got, basically, I've got two choices. I can go down there myself, right? I can go down there myself and... And, you know, hopefully, or, or I can call the police. And he's, he kind of reasoned to himself, well, what's the worst case scenario of each one? And he's like, well, uh, if, I, if, I, if I go down there and there's a, you know, there's a criminal down there and I get in some sort of fight, he might kill me and then come up and attack my family. He's like, that's, that's the worst case scenario there. Um, worst case scenario, if I call the police, is that I just look really silly when I go down there and I tell him that the radio just came on. He's like... I think I'd rather be alive. So he calls the police. And the police officer comes, and, and he waits for the police officer to come. police officer comes to the door. My brother runs down the stairs. And as soon as my brother runs down the stairs, he realizes everything's fine. He realizes the alarm must have been set. He opens the door, and he apologizes profusely to this police officer. And the officer's like, no, that's why I'm here. That's what we're here for, right? 
And, and so, now I want you to think about this for a moment, right? And that's great. That's wonderful. Once you imagine, I was imagining if that had been me, if, my, if I'd been in my brother's shoes. But I want to imagine if I had lived in a pre-modern society. But let's imagine I st- we still had phones, okay? Let's just try to make the, the analogy work. Pre-modern society, listen, where I can't call the police. There's no police to call. And so what am I going to do? Well, I would, you know what I'd do is I'd, I would call people in the church. I'd call Bruce Thames and, 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 and David Lee and Eric Martin and Al Martinez. These are five guys who live about five minutes from here in the church and combine their combined size and fighting ability, I think, could make a pretty impressive special forces team, right? And so I would, I would call them. Now, there's a disadvantage to this as well. The disadvantage to me calling those four guys at three in the morning is that they might show up in their underwear. I know, you guys like, really? You wanted that image here at church. Right? But, but so you call the police, and at least they're going to show up. They're, they're, you know, they can call backup. So there's all kinds of advantages with that. But imagine the stories that would be told in this church for years to come. Remember that time the pastor called and we showed up in our underwear and he just turned the radio on? But you see, then these social ties would naturally happen. I'm just using that as one example. I mean, we, nobody, very few people here think we shouldn't have a police force, right? So my point is that, that that's just one example of the way in which modern society is structured in a way that natural uh, social bonds don't happen. That because we don't rely on each other for our physical needs as much, then we, we just don't get together as much. It doesn't happen as naturally, but those social needs are still there. All of this, again, I told you, I wasn't even sure I was going to tell this story, points to the reality that we have to be intentional about forming community or it just, it just won't happen. And so that's why I'm encouraging you to, to, to join a community group. If you're in one, to stay in one. If you're not in one, to look to try to get in one. There are different kinds. We just really encourage you to at least consider getting in that. Because here, here's what I'm just going to say. I'm going to put it this way. I'm going to put it a little bit dramatically. If you don't join a community group, you might boil to death in your own solitude. If you don't join a community group, you just might boil to death in your own solitude. I started off this sermon by sharing about frogs. If you take a frog and you put a frog in boiling water, the frog jumps out. But if you take a frog and you put him in a pot of water that's room temperature and you turn on the heat and it slowly starts to warm up the water, you know, for the frog, first the frogs are like, this is nice, this is warm, it's kind of like a jacuzzi, right? The same thing is true with solitude. At first, it might seem nice. It might, this is great, I just love being alone, but over time, over time, it will actually begin to kill your soul. So when I ask you if you're going to be in a community group, there's really only two answers. There's yes and ribbit. (laughs) Are you going to join a community group? Yes or ribbit? We need community. We need to be intentional about it. And so what I want to do just as we close here, I'm just to highlight three things that we find in this text that highlight how it is 
that community brings transformation? Or what are three characteristics of transformative community, right? Oh, my gosh. I should totally answer this. Everybody's going to say, hi, Dennis. Are you ready? One, two, three. Hi, Dennis. Say, we want you to come to church. One, two, three. We want you to come to church. Dennis? Hey, buddy. Yeah. I'm, I'm giving my sermon right now. They just asked you to come. We would love for you to come. Yeah, anyway. Yeah, can I call you back? No, okay, no worries. All right, everybody say bye, Dennis. Bye, Dennis. All right, bye, he says bye. All right, see you. All right. Okay. I don't really know where to go from there. Uh, okay. Yeah, put on vibrate. That's probably good. Actually, I'm just going to give it to you. We just take it. Thank you. Okay, real quick. What kind of community can bring the transformation that we're talking about? We're talking about how community makes your soul fit. And we need to look at, just like with prayer and with meditation, we talked about how you know, there are ways of praying and ways of meditating which can help to bring transformation. How does community do this? First of all, we're looking for a community that is all about encouragement. Okay, So transformative community is all about encouragement. We see this again in verse 24 and 25. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. That our communities should be just bastions of encouragement. That encouragement should be like a virus that infects every aspect of our community. Have you ever gotten a virus that just every program on your computer is affected by this virus, that's what encouragement should be like in our communities. It's all about encouragement. We should encourage one another when we see... Let me put it this way. When I talk about encouragement, uh, let me qualify it a little bit. When I talk about encouraging one another, I'm not talking about participation trophies. I'm not talking about the kind of encouragement in the participation trophy culture that we live in. In other words, when I'm talking about encouraging one another, I'm not just talking about sitting around talking about how great we are. I'm not just talking about, you know, kind of being fake and and telling somebody that they're great at something when they're not. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not Christian encouragement. Christian encouragement, because here's the truth, and, and we saw this earlier on, we are all sinners, So encouragement is not like just trying to tell everybody that they're great. Christian encouragement, you know what it is? Christian encouragement is encouraging with one another with how great God is. That's how we encourage one another, is by encouraging how great God is, by taking a look at our circumstances, whatever we're going through, and saying whatever you're dealing with, we have, you should be encouraged because you worship an amazing God. Maybe you are struggling with sin. Maybe that you have, you're not living your life in a way that you know is good for you or honoring for, uh, to God. We encourage one another by saying, you worship a God who can get you through that. 
You worship a God who can bring change in your life, who rose from the dead. You're going through some difficulty at work. We encourage one another, not by just saying, oh, you're great, you're doing great. No, but you worship a great God who will get you through whatever you're dealing with. We encourage them with the gospel. This is, this is why this whole idea of encouragement, this ties into one of our three core values, which is being gospel-centered. What does gospel-centered community look like? Gospel-centered community is community where we encourage one another with the greatness of our God revealed to us in Jesus. That's the kind of encouragement uh, that we're talking about. So secondly, we, that's one aspect of transformative community is encouragement. Secondly is fellowship, just spending time together, right? This one's pretty basic. Let us not give up the habit. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. It's just, it's just being together. And this is why I encourage us to, in our community groups, that simply being together is important. This is why I encourage, oftentimes I'll encourage groups to share a meal together. Simply building relationships, uh, becoming friends is really important, uh, even for your soul. Uh, Even just, you know, there's all kinds of research out there that that shows that what, what are the keys to happiness in this world. And all of the, the studies are showing, we all know this, it's not money, uh, it's not success, it's not youth, right? In fact, older people tend to be happier than younger people, interestingly enough. It, it's none of those things, but what absolutely stands out in the research is friendships. The happiest people tend to be people who have healthy social relationships. And so this is why just, just being together, again, this is why I encourage just sharing a meal together, <coughs> doing activities together together that this is, this is an important part of what will enable our souls to become <coughs> fit. So number one is encouragement. Number two is fellowship. And then number three is spurring one another on towards love and good deeds. Again, verse 24, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And, you know, what we're getting right there, once again, what we're getting there is actually a picture of what a soul-fit person looks like. What does a person whose soul is fit look like? It's a person who loves one another. Jesus says that that is the fulfillment of the law, that if you take all of the, the commands of the Old Testament, and, and what would it look like for those to be written on our hearts? It would look like a person who gives themselves towards loving one another. And so Transformative community is all about inspiring and spurring one another on to love others. And so this kind of love, what this is going to do is this is going to spill into our community and it's going to spill out of our community as well. Community that is, that is really seeking to bring transformation into our souls is always going to begin to move beyond our community. And this, this, is, why, uh, this is why this ties in with our third core, deval- core value of our church, which is being outwardly faced, right? And so the outwardly, what does outwardly faced community look like? Outwardly faced community is community that recognizes, hey, we're spurring one another on towards love and good deeds, which means we need to look for ways to engage those outside of our group, right? So this is a question I think every community group needs to be asking. How can we move beyond ourselves? Every community group always needs to be asking this question. How can we move beyond ourselves, 
whether that means serving in some way, serving those outside the community, whether that means inviting others into your community group, whether that means sending out people from your group to start another community group, figuring out who that might be, whatever it might look like, we simply need to be asking this question, how can we move beyond ourselves? So in conclusion, I'm just going to draw this all together. What are these, these three aspects of transformative community? And this is, I'm encouraging our community groups to identify these three things and constantly be asking themselves, is this going on in our community group? First of all, encouragement. Secondly, fellowship. And secondly, spurring one another on to love and good deeds. And again, these, these tie in with the three core values of our church. You know, I've been here now for seven-some years, and certainly different things have changed, and even my perspective on things have changed, vision-wise and whatnot, over the years. But there's one thing that just has not changed, and I feel like just each year I come to realize more and more, I, I become more grounded in, and that is these three core values that I laid out even six or seven years ago, and that is that our church seeks to be gospel-centered, community-oriented, and outwardly faced. And that's what we find in this passage is what it looks like. It's encouragement, encouraging one another with the gospel. It's community. It's fellowship. It's being with one another. It's being outwardly faced, looking to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And so, again, with each of our community groups, this is the question I want to ask is, in our community group, are we being gospel-centered? Are we being community-oriented? And are we being outwardly faced? Let's pray. Dear God, we come before you this morning and we praise you for the gift of community. God, we need one another. Uh, We need one another uh, more than we realize. God, I just pray uh, that your spirit would come and work in this church, and begin to shape more and more communities within this church, Lord, that are growing in the gospel, encouraging one another, communities where we are becoming closer and closer with one another, and communities where we're looking to reach out to those beyond. God, that we might be shaped, that our souls might be shaped into the people that you have called us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name.